Well, welcome to Grace Community Church, or welcome back, as the case may be. Welcome home would be more appropriate, those of you who were here uh, for homecoming weekend and have wandered over our way. We're so glad that you came home. I, uh, it's, I, it's a very interesting Sunday for you to be here just one shot in a long time because uh, the message today is we're, we're in Genesis, and I'll get to that a little bit later, but it's somewhat of a difficult standalone message. It's sort of in the middle of a, of a flow. Uh, I was thinking uh, about how to say this this morning in context of the message, but it all fits together. You know, Chris was talking about the election, and I was praying Friday night, and I was asking the Lord, I said, Lord, please cause this election to go in the way that is best for our country. And then the Holy Spirit said, wrong prayer. And the correct prayer is, Lord, let this election go according to what is best for your kingdom. That is not necessarily the prayer that I want to pray. I have ideas about what's best for our country, uh, as I'm sure many of you do as well. But God's kingdom is more important than this kingdom. Now, we can still say that. You could not say that in a lot of countries. And I hope that the, the freedom to say that continues for many years to come. But nonetheless, and again, as we go into the message, I think that's going to make sense. I'll probably not refer back to it, but I, I hope it all flows together. If you were new here today, we are in a series on Genesis. Um, we've been in this series for four weeks, and, and you're going to find this hard to believe, but we're already up to chapter 2 today. Uh, but buckle your seatbelts, because by Thanksgiving, we'll be out of chapter 3 already. Uh, okay, no doubt. We're taking our time in, in these first three chapters uh, of Genesis. That's not surprising when you think about it, though. You think about how foundational these three chapters are. Not only for the book of Genesis, not only for the Pentateuch, of which there are a part, five books that go together, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're also foundational for the Old Testament, for the New Testament, and for all eternity. What happens here impacts all eternity. And that's pretty important stuff. Today we're going to introduce the important, introduces the key here, the important biblical concept of covenant, though there's going to be much more to say in the weeks to come. Now I promised you before that once we, we, we get through these three chapters of Genesis, uh, we're going to pick up steam and hopefully finish this book by next August. Somebody earlier said, uh, we're going to be in here for a little while longer, a few more weeks. We're going to be for quite a few more weeks uh, up through through August. But don't feel like we're going to be stuck in one place. Genesis, along with just a couple of other books, Psalms and, and Acts maybe, takes us all over Scripture. We will be moving all around in Scripture. So don't think we're just kind of stuck in, in, in one place. Um. But but since we're we're starting slow and finishing quickly, that means we're going to miss a lot of what Genesis has to say. But it doesn't mean for on Sunday morning. But it doesn't mean you have to miss it. As I was thinking about this schedule, uh, it occurred to me that it would be helpful to offer uh, an explanation of what we try to accomplish here on Sunday morning. And when I say we, it's not a royal we. We, we have uh, several teachers. Two of us primarily carry the load up here, but there are several others, Sean and I, and then David does, and our elders do. Uh, it, they can fill in at a moment's notice at any time, and, and, and the teachers are trying to accomplish something on Sunday morning. And while God's glory is the ultimate goal, and it has to be the purpose and desire of every preacher, God gave us His, reason, His word for a reason. He wants to communicate truth to us. Wants to understand, wants us to understand it, and, and he wants us to uh, uh, to apply it and give us life through his life giving word. There is, at a minimum, a threefold goal for what happens on Sunday morning. Uh, first, we want to present the truth of what God is saying in a particular text. We do that by providing uh, context and explanation that might not be evident to the casual reader. 
Um, so in order, to pro- in order to get the truth of the text, we, we're going to have to go into the context and, and maybe some of the language that, that wouldn't be available, accessible to the casual reader. And don't get frustrated when you hear me saying, or Sean or anybody saying, well, now, in the language, in the original language, and you're thinking, well, how am I ever supposed to know that? Look, Ephesians 4, that's why God gave teachers to the church. So that's our job to run that down and to find out things that will help understand or help explain this a a little bit better and help you understand it. Uh, So what are these words, what do they mean in the original context? What was the writer trying to say? Who were the people hearing it? And by the way, didn't plan to say this, but again, since we've got so many first-timers, we're understanding, or or just one time in, in a long time, we're, we're trying to understand Genesis the same way that the first people who heard it understood. And those people were the children of Israel who were coming out of Egypt. God had defeated the, 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 the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and had drowned the army. And the children of Israel were saying, who is this God that has done this for us? And Moses is writing to them explaining who God is. So that's what we're, we're doing. What, what did the, the, the writings mean in the original and what do they mean today? But the best teachers do far more than teach the material. They teach their students to continue to grow uh, in knowledge of a particular subject, mostly by giving them foundational principles that will allow them to go deeper into the Word and, and how to pursue more knowledge with discernment. So, the second goal on Sunday mornings is to provide a framework for going deeper into the text, which may very well take you all over Scripture. Uh, Providing a framework for further study may mean that we spend extra time on a short passage and move more quickly through a more sizable uh, portion of Scripture, just like we're going to be doing through Genesis. Can, Can I say this? If you want to really, if you really desire to learn more about Scripture, it's available for you. A lot of people get discouraged when they start getting into the Word. I don't know what that means. But look, it's just like so many other subjects that we study. If you, if you stay at it, oftentimes you, you feel like you're in a fog, but the fog clears behind you. Does that make sense? Our Greek professor used to say that. He'd say, look, I know you realize this, this, this lesson that we're studying tonight, you feel like you're in a fog, but what do you think about last week? Oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, but how did you feel last week when we were studying it? You felt like you were in a fog. And the fog just kind of moves with you. You're always trying to get your head around it, but you're learning so much more than you think you do. So if you'll get a good study Bible help, such as the ESV study Bible, you, and, and you'll apply these principles of, uh, uh, of the framework of going deeper, then you'll be amazed at what you can learn. But it's a lifelong pursuit. So again, don't get discouraged and stop. And don't expect to be a scholar next week. That's, you're going to always be learning. That's, that's an encouraging thing. Because God is infinite. And we are finite with an eternal future. Now, that's another one of those things you've got to think about, right? <laughs> We're finite with, with an eternal future. We'll always be learning. I, I'm not sure how it's going to work when, when it's 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, we shall know even as we are known. But I do know at the very least our capacity for understanding more of this in, in, in incredible God will always be growing, as will our joy. And the more our knowledge increases here, the greater will be our present joy. You'll discover, though, that knowledge of God is not the ultimate goal for Sunday morning preaching because knowledge without application can lead to the worst kind of sin. Self-righteous pride. The sin of the Pharisees. You know, it's probably the sin that most of, almost all of us struggle with, and it's the one that we fail to address. Uh, we, we tend to think, well, God's on my side. I can tell the Word. I'm gonna... Jesus 
harshest words were for those who were so full of themselves and, and, and proud and not humble. And that's what happens when we gain knowledge and we fail to apply it. So the goal is to apply Scripture to our lives once again, or once again to provide a framework through which you can apply what you've learned. Uh, the Holy Spirit's going to apply the truth of God's Word to us in different ways. Uh, sometimes I'll say, well, this is what the preacher said, and then I'll stop and say, well, now, this is what I heard. Be very careful to make distinctions here about w- what I'm saying. The key for our applying the Word is that the Word be applied and, and, be, and that our application be grounded in the truth of Scripture. Think about the difference between these two statements. Well, this is what this verse means to me. And this is how the Holy Spirit is applying the truth of this passage to me. They sound very similar, don't they? But think about it. This is what this verse means to me. And, and the misapplication, for those of you who are interested, of the, of the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer allows people to just look at Scripture and say, oh, okay, well, the Lord is applying this to me in this way. It does not matter what it means to us until we first understand what it meant when it was originally written. And then we can bring Scripture, because it's eternal, into the present and, dis- and discern how does the truth of what is said in this Word apply to my life? How am I to deal with it based on truth? And the Spirit of God will pierce our hearts and stir us to repentance and action. But if we just say, well, you know, I just feel like God's saying this to me right now. And I'm sincere. Look, there are a lot of people that are sincere that have missed the truth. Almost all religious people are at some level sincere about their beliefs. But if you don't know Jesus, then you've missed the truth of God's Word. And that's what Genesis is pointing to. So this morning, the message will most likely go in a different direction than you anticipate. Because of this desire to provide this framework for understanding more and more about it. If you want to get into the specifics of chapter 2, and we'll talk about them a little bit, you can do that a lot more at home group than we're going to do this morning. This is going to sound a little bit odd to you, but one of the reasons I took the time to talk about the structure of a Sunday morning sermon is because there's no way we can cover everything that needs to be covered here. And so consequently, it's like, listen so that we can, you can go deeper on your own or in smaller groups. Our text is Genesis 2, 4 to 17, but the first three verses that conclude the teaching of the seven days of creation speak to the rest of this chapter, which will be a little more detailed account of what happened on day 6. So we're going to begin reading in Genesis 2, 1. If you would please stand as we read God's Word. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that he had done in creation. God still works. Jesus tells us that. The Father still works. But he rested from all of his creative works. And it's one of those theological things that takes, we've talked about it in the spring, but, but the rest continues. The Sabbath rest, and it's the Sabbath rest in Hebrews 4 that the writer is telling us we need to, to strive to enter that rest. Shouldn't have even stopped and done that. I'm sorry. Verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. It's untended. And a mist, or better, a spring was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We have no idea where this is. Well, a general idea. Probably in modern-day Iraq is where this is, but we don't know for sure. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I was thinking when Daniel was sharing his testimony today about how he's trying to live intentionally. See, that was a pattern that was established at creation. It's another one of those patterns. We're not going there today, but it's a pattern that was established at creation and continues to this day. God wants us to live intentionally. He put him in the Garden of Eden, the man in the Garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. Then in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him, I'm sorry, that's as far as we're supposed to go. Sean picks up there next week. I'm telling you, my head is in like this, uh, with Genesis in general and this in particular this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just are so grateful for your word We're thankful that you did not leave us here to try to figure this out the best way that we can. And and, and we're grateful that no matter how smart we are, uh, since salvation is of you and understanding is of you, that you have chosen to give us this understanding and to call us to yourself. Uh, Father... Uh, We pray that your spirit would move in our midst today. And it could be that there is today someone here who has not known you through Jesus. And you desire that that be the case. I pray that you will open eyes, ears, hearts to the truth of your word. And for all of us, Lord, that, that understand that this gospel that we proclaim is a cycle. And that we're constantly moving Uh, through the cycle of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We pray that your word would just open up to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, what we're talking about is is redemptive history. And we're in the very beginning stages of, of redemptive history that were laid out, established at creation and and especially when we get to chapter three in a few weeks we're going to see how god deals graciously with his rebellious children as sean pointed out last week all human beings are in one sense god's children it doesn't mean that all will be called to a special relationship with him but all are accountable to him because he is the creator of all in genesis 2 we are pre-fall we haven't experienced yet the fall where everything changes this changes everything you know it's we we haven't gotten there yet but even still we see the truth of the gospel being laid out the gospel or the good news that jesus saves is not wasn't even necessary until after the fall but already the seeds of the gospel are put in place we'll see that uh as we go so here's a question 
Was the fall a part of God's plan? Or did God put his plan in place because he knew that man would fall? Indeed, yes. Uh, I was actually going to say next question. Or as some politicians say, proceed, proceed. Um, God's bigger than we are. Elohim, we talked about this name Elohim, which God identifies himself 35 times in the first 35 verses. All of chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. Elohim, it's a name that, that meant gods. It could have been used for gods. It's, it's plural. But when it's used of the one true God as it was by Moses and by all the writers of the, of the Old Testament... It, it means that God is so much bigger than we are. And He is the creator of the entire universe. We'll never understand or comprehend Him fully. And, and so we can't answer that question to anybody's satisfaction. Because it, every, every, every answer you give raises other questions. So, to this point, all we have known God is as Elohim. Now in Genesis 2, 4, we learn a new name for God. It's the name Yahweh. It's the, it's the name that he used, God used whenever he was dealing with this covenant people in a covenant kind of relationship. Adam didn't know this name. Abraham didn't know this name. Isaac, Jacob, none of the people in Genesis heard God say, I am Yahweh. He didn't reveal himself to mankind until Exodus 3. And really at that point he only revealed himself to one person. Moses. And then again in Exodus 6 he, he repeated I am Yahweh. After Moses had convinced the children of Israel. Let me go to Pharaoh and tell them that I'm supposed to lead you out of here. And Pharaoh laughed and mocked. And he said my God is so much. My gods are so much bigger than this puny God that you're talking about. Your slaves. So get out of my sight. Leaders weren't happy, and so Moses was complaining to God, and God said, I am Yahweh, and I will show you my power, my authority over all of the universe. I'm the one who created it. I can handle it. And, and, and this name Yahweh was indicated to Moses as the name of God that he uses with the people that he has called to himself. And the nation of Israel with whom his covenant rested. So, if God never said, my name is Yahweh until Moses, why would he write that into the story back in Genesis 1 and 2? Or Genesis 2 and there on out. Because Moses knew more than they did in the garden. And in very much the same way, when we understand the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and His ascension, and the Holy Spirit's moving on the prophets to, to interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus, we read Jesus into, not, that can be a bad way of saying that, to read Him into the Old Testament text, but we see Him there. It's a better way of saying it. We see Jesus in the Old Testament. And so Moses writes and says, Yahweh Elohim, he actually uses this compound name. Now, um, <clears throat> Moses understood that God was interacting with his people in terms of the covenant that he had with him. Not, not all humanity enjoys this special relationship with God, so he doesn't address all people as Yahweh. But he usually does when dealing with his people. One of the ways you can know that Yahweh is being used in the Old Testament is whenever you see LORD in all caps, that's, that's referring to Yahweh. It's translating the name Yahweh. Uh, in Ezekiel, you'll see and maybe a few other places, GOD in all caps. But usually it's LORD. And then there's the idea of taking the vowel points from Adonai and uh, superimposing them on, never mind, we don't need to go there. There's a, there's a lot more, but this name Yahweh is used in conjunction with His people, His covenant people. So now we're seeing several times Yahweh Elohim is used <coughs> in Genesis 2. He's both covenant God of His people, but He's also the creator of all humanity. <laughs> he is the father of all 
humanity, but he is especially the father of a chosen people that he is called to represent him. One of the things we don't have time at all to talk about today, maybe later, is, is the importance of a mediator in a covenant, one who represents the strong party in a covenant. So God is Elohim, the creator of everything that exists. He is also, though, near and accessible to his people. He is transcendent, high above his creation, and yet he is imminent. Those are theological terms you've heard before transcendent eminent he's high above he's holy he's so far beyond our ability to comprehend and yet he is very much a part of our lives here and especially though a part of those whom he has called into a special covenant relationship now the, the use of Yahweh's name would have been very in Genesis 2 here would have been very significant to the people of the Exodus. And it's very significant to us when we understand the meaning of the name. Now, if I were to ask you, someone tell us what the name Yahweh means. No doubt, some of you would stand up and say, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Or in other words, I exist and that's all you need to know. I don't have to prove myself to you. I am who I am. Michael Williams points out in his book, As Far as the Curse is Found, that the English translation is seriously lacking. He contends that all of the following are wrapped up in the name of Yahweh. It means so much more than I exist. And think about these these aspects of Yahweh with relation to the the problem that is just so painful to you today, that is so devastating in your life. I am the one who keeps promise. I'm the one who is always faithful. I am the one who is there for my people. And even more specifically, I am here for you. And I am the one who acts on your behalf. You see this over and over and over in the Old Testament. I act on your behalf. So hold these beautiful truths about God in your heart as we consider what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. With a God who writes his own agreements. We're going to spend most of the rest of our time thinking about covenant. But before we go into that, let me just point out a few things in in our text that we absolutely don't have time to explore, but will provide framework for further study that I mentioned. In in verse 4, where God had rested from all His creative works, the text begins, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. The word generations translates the Greek, I mean the Hebrew word toledot which through Greek is where we get Genesis. Um, Toledot is far more important than you might imagine. This word is far more important than you might imagine. It's mentioned 11 times in Genesis, and it's really the structure, it's the framework around which the whole book is built and it, it, it is written. And, and one of the significant benefits of understanding this word which we'll get to in a few weeks and when we talk about generations actually several weeks when we talk about genealogies uh, which is going to be far more interesting than you might anticipate but one of the things that this does is it ties all of genesis together it 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 refutes the fact that the first 11 chapters of genesis are myth or a legend fable of some sort it ties it all together And it tells us that God was writing history in addition to telling us poetically things that we need to know in those first 11 chapters. Um, As I say, we'll we'll learn more about that in in about a month or so. The poetic structure of Genesis 2-4 is worth uh, our consideration, though it's going to be brief. Uh, After the first line, these are the generations. The rest of the verse is found in, in chiastic form or, or, or it's like a mirror and it looks like this. Uh, a, heavens. B, earth. When they were created in the day the Lord God made 
the earth and the heavens. Look at, look at this verse in your Bible. And, and did it read oddly to you? I mean, it, it, when you first think about it, it, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's not exactly the way we would say it, is it? It's poetry. And it's symmetry in the way that it's written. It's, it's written with this beautiful form and design. Why is it so significant? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. After we consider one other note about the description of day six that's given in Genesis 2. Some theologians see a pre-temple setting in the Garden of Eden. They, they see, they see uh, that, that God is providing a sanctuary, a temple, a tabernacle. The tabernacle and the temple were seen as, as a place of sanctuary. They were seen as a place where God dwells in the Old Testament. And people would go to for comfort and forgiveness and, and, and to be in the presence of God. Now, let me say this clearly. The text does not require such an interpretation. But the speculation is quite informed, and, and it's interesting. If you have an ESV study Bible, you're going to read in the notes on Genesis 2, 1 to 3, that the various Near Eastern, in various Near Eastern accounts of the day, divine rest was associated with temple building. That's why we read the first three verses of, of Genesis 2, because it sort of sets the stage for the rest, even though it really belongs with Genesis 1. Um, so, there are several other indications that the garden pointed to the tabernacle and the temple, such as God's presence in the garden, as we're going to see in Genesis 3. The materials that are mentioned in the garden are, are found in the tabernacle and temple. And man is put in the garden to, to work it and to keep it, just like the priest were put into the tabernacle and then the temple. In other words, the seeds of the gospel were in creation even before the fall. God is, is, is painting this picture. He's building a design. Now, think again about this chiasmus in Genesis 2-4. Um, and the symmetry that is there. But there is symmetry not only in, in, in a verse like this, but it's in all of Scripture. What about the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible? you think there's any connection there that kind of flows like this? Absolutely there is. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the heavens and the earth. We see light from an unnamed source. We see a holy seventh day. And we see a garden with the tree of life and the river of life. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see the new heavens and the earth. We see a light that is without sun because the glory of God lights up the world. And we see this new Jerusalem that's a sanctuary and a tree of life and a river of life. Book ends. Now, if one author had written all of the Bible, and it would be a life work, wouldn't it? I mean, you, you, that's about all you'd have time for. If you wrote the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you fit it all together, we would say, wow, this is, this is just profound. But my goodness, this, this book was written over 1,500 years. And it was written by at least 40 authors. And, and there are 66 different books. And these guys came from all different kinds of background. And you look at John. John, a fisherman who wrote Revelation, who wrote the Gospel of John. His grammar and, and vocabulary indicate to us he was a simple man. He did not, I, I just don't see John figuring all of this out and making these connections that he made all through the Gospel of John and Revelation. The God, the creative, the creator of the universe, the, the, the God who is a God of order and design and symmetry. Put it all together. And somehow you, who are the messiest person you know, that all fits into his beautiful design. And there is order even in that.
clearly scripture is as it seems to be the work of the holy spirit we worship and serve a remarkable god and this all-powerful creator god has called us to a covenant relationship with himself so what is covenant what is a covenant I mean, since it's mentioned 286 times in the Old Testament, you might get the idea it's an important concept. Uh, It's not mentioned until Genesis 9, but covenantal aspects just over, they cover all of Genesis 1 and 2. A covenant is essentially, it's a formal agreement between two parties. Then to make that really formal. Dennis McCarthy says it's a union based on an oath, and then Meredith Klein goes further to say it's a relationship under sanctions. Meredith Klein had a lot to say about all that we've said so far in Genesis. Just a brilliant mind, very, very innovative thinker who stayed with the truth of the text and saw more than most people see in in Scripture. Uh, He died about five years ago, but Made a, made a great contribution to our understanding of how God has put his word together. And by the way, there are just so many. You know, God calls every generation to think through his truth in a new way. That doesn't mean that there is new truth being given. But it, it means it's just like when we're in heaven. Our truth, our understanding of God ought to be expanding. So just because somebody says something you've never heard before. And even if you've studied a whole lot, doesn't mean that it's illegitimate. Just make sure that it's, it's tested against the truth of Scripture and that people are not reading too much into what's being said. But let's think about Klein's definition. Uh, it may be the most precise with regard to God's covenants with man because those covenants in the old days were... were, were um, agreements that were built between nations uh, and the stronger nation dictated the terms and the weaker or defeated nation had no choice but to submit. We're going to see this when God makes a special covenant with Abraham. He, he, he takes a, an animal and splits it in two. You know, Abraham goes into this deep sleep, but they walk between, God walks between the animals that have been split apart. And that's the, there was a lot of symbolism in that. And the idea was, if the covenant, if the terms of this covenant are broken, let it be like this animal that's just split apart, torn apart. Now, that's okay if you're the stronger party. It's not so good if you're the weaker party. You know, I mean, it's quite a, a visual for you. You're getting this idea, you're getting this picture. Okay, I've got to fulfill my end of the covenant. Well, let's look at the covenant God makes with Adam in Genesis 2. Verse 15, the Lord God, Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What gives God the authority to write his own agreements? Yeah, that's the, that's the proper response. It's, just a, it's a laugh. Uh, I will do what I do so well. It's a spiritual gift of mine. State the obvious. Uh, he is creator. He, he is king over the land that he has created and over which he has placed man to steward. He has the, deride, the right to demand and expect for us whatever he desires and whatever he deems best. Now, this is not so good if, if, the, if the superior party has evil intentions. But remember what we've learned about our covenant God, Yahweh, who he is. I will be here for you. I will fight for you. I will protect you. I love you deeply. God is a loving, gracious God who is infinitely better than his creation, which is good, indeed very good. He placed man in a spectacularly beautiful garden, and he says, help yourself. Only one tree. Don't don't go there. But other than that, 
help yourself. When he deals with his covenant people, God's covenant name, Yahweh, promises presence, protection, blessing. Life was as perfect for Adam and Eve as the garden that had been perfectly suited was for them. God's covenant with Adam and Eve was a blessing that came with a warning, and the warning was for their protection. Not so that they would keep from some pleasure. I mean, we do that with our little children all the time, don't we? Honey, you can't play with that knife. Oh, I'm going to play with a knife. No, you can't. I'm sorry. I make the rules, and the rule is you don't play with a knife. But it would be fun to play with a knife. We know more, don't we? We understand that. The pleasures that we're going to enjoy, those of us who know Jesus, the pleasures that we're going to enjoy listed in Revelation 21, 22 were available for Adam and Eve. <laughs> now, fortunately, at that point, we will not be capable of sinning. We will not be capable of disobeying. God was totally benevolent toward his children, his creation. The blessing of a covenant is, and, and, and a lot of people don't think of it this way, but the blessing of a covenant is that it's binding. Next week, we're going to talk about marriage and the covenant relationship of marriage. But see, people don't treat marriage as a covenant today, do they? Look, when people say, let's live together and see if we're compatible to one another. It's far better. It's far better. Basically what that's saying is, I, I don't want to be committed. I, I just don't want to get in here and, and, and find out that I don't want to be here. Way better to say, look, just get married and figure it out. Have you lost your mind? I, think about it. I've thought about this a lot the last few days. And now it just comes to me how it is. What it is, I, I didn't think I could articulate it. And if I don't hurry up, I won't be able to now. Um, but look, maybe we do damage. Maybe we do damage when we tell people, just wait, don't make sure. Uh, parents, be careful about telling your children to make sure so much. Because let me tell you something, the, the, the binding commitment, the covenant of marriage on the day that we say, I do when we commit for the rest of our lives, that's what counts in marriage. And so many times people split up just before it gets good or gets better anyway. But, and, and we think, well, well you know, I'm, Sean's going to talk about this next week, so I, gotta, I better quit. He'll be saying, what am I, I going to say? Well, we know he'll have a lot to say anyway. I didn't mean that like that, but it is funny. <laughs> and he could say the same for me as we are already over time, and I've still got a few minutes to go. We all know what happened to Adam and Eve in this paradise that they so enjoyed. We're soon going to talk about sin and the consequences to Adam and Eve and the consequences to all of creation. In fact, if I were to ask you, is, is your life as perfect today as it was for Adam and Eve before the fall? Well, again, you just laugh. You just say, no, of course not. Is that because something changed in God when Adam and Eve sinned? No. Is he still a good God? Well, once again, you're going to say, well, of course he's a good God. But, but be honest. Are you not tempted at times to think, no, he's not a good God? Even if you don't say it, even if you don't, I, I don't allow myself to blame God or accuse God, but I do with the way that I respond to things and actions. I really do deep down. I'm saying, God, if you were, you didn't have to allow this to happen. I, I don't say those words out loud, but I may as well be. That's the way I think. I think, is he a good God? Does he really care about me or not? Seems like he has it out for me. What would have happened if Adam and Eve had not rebelled against their creator? They wouldn't have died. 
the home group leaders are reading uh, Kent Hughes' commentary on Genesis, and he points out, well, who knows? Maybe they would have, maybe they would have been taken to heaven, or maybe they would have lived here. We don't know for sure, but we know that the that death came as a result of their sin. Either way, they wouldn't have suffered the consequences of their sin, <clears throat> but they did, and we are their children. You've heard that expression, oh, he's his father's son. You know, we are. The covenant with God was broken, and all who were born of Adam and Eve are without the blessings and protection inherent with God's covenant. In fact, they are under the curse until something happens. Until something is done to rectify the situation, we are under the curse of the covenant. We're going to talk more about covenants when we come to Noah and Abraham. But for now, it's enough to acknowledge that there would be many more covenants after Adam broke his covenant with God. And each covenant would assume what's already been written and it would just build on it. But the problem with all the covenants was man was never going to be able to keep his end of the bargain. We were never going to be able to obey God as simple as it was for them. Just don't eat of that one tree. You got everything else, just don't eat of that one tree. And that coveting is the root of so much of our sin. But the good news is that Jesus came. And we don't think about this first part, but it's so important. Jesus perfectly kept all the requirements of the covenant. He kept it all. His life, he lived a perfect life, which made him eligible to suffer the consequences in our place. Look, in the, in the old days, if a leader of a country rebelled against the country that was over them, everybody suffered didn't work so much the other way, but in the way God wrote His covenants, He found a way to enable us to experience the blessings that He promised without suffering the curses, even though we had failed miserably on our end. When Jesus died, He he not only suffered physically, but He endured the spiritual death for all who would believe in Him. He took God's wrath upon Himself so that we might be given eternal life. And so that one day, we get to return to that garden from which Adam and Eve were driven because of their sin. Jesus paid for our sins. He took our place on the cross. Our gracious God will restore all that has been lost for those who know Jesus. Let's pray. So the first question is, do you know Jesus? On what do you base your hope for the day that you're going to stand before God? And you're going to have to give an account for breaking God's covenant with mankind. Your only hope is in Jesus, who who said, just think about what he said on the night that he was betrayed with reference to the sacrifice he would make. This cup is poured out for you. That is poured out for you is is the new covenant in my blood. When we know Jesus, there's a new covenant with God, and we are blessed And as it's already been mentioned this morning, he did everything. Jesus died for your sins. If you you don't know him, would you confess before God that you're a sinner? That's what repentance is, to say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've I've lived this life my way, and now I turn to you. And, And then look to Jesus as the substitute and sacrifice for the penalty that you deserve to pay. If you belong to Jesus, will you ask Him 
to increase in your heart the hope of eternity with Him. It's going to be better than the Garden of Eden. And when that hope in us increases, our desire to please and serve this beautiful, gracious God grows. If you're a Christ follower, the consequences of sin in this world have no claim on your heart. They do not have any ultimate say. Isn't it time to worship rather than be given to discouragement and self-pity as many of us indulge at times? Revelation 4, 11, the song of the 24 elders around the throne of God serve as an example for our eternal praise. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm chapter 20. Trust in the name of the Lord our God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you the desires, excuse me, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, Set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving might of his right hand, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Go in peace.